In this episode, we sit down with George Anastasia. George is a retired writer for the Inquirer, where he covered uh, the Philly mob and local organized crime for a few decades. He now does some work with Philly Voice with Dave Schratweiser. And uh, he sat with us for a meal at the Kitchen Consigliere in uh, Collingswood. It's a pretty good, insightful interview. Don't forget to review, subscribe, and rate us wherever you consume your podcast. And follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all as The Philly Blunt. We hope you enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name is Johnny Goodtimes. I'm Reef. Hey, this is Greg. And we are extremely excited to be over our first ever show in South Jersey. What up, Jersey? I don't know if I'm excited <laughs> to be here, but I'm here. Yeah. Uh, we are at, and please tell me I pronounce this right, the Kitchen Conciliary. Kitchen Conciliary, right. Yeah. Conci- yeah. All right, you're, conciliary. you're close. All right, you're, you're, in the ball, you're in the ballpark. I'm in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have, uh, we're very excited about this week's guest. Uh, we have George Anastasia, formerly of the Philadelphia Inquirer, currently doing videos with the Philly Voice and writing uh, screenplays and doing all sorts of stuff. A legendary uh, figure in our yeah. city, for sure. Oh, thank you yes, very sir. much. Thank you. Uh, George, definitely excited to have you on the show. Uh, you recommended, as, as we typically do, we uh, ask the guest on the show to recommend where they want to eat or drink yeah. and you recommended this spot what is it about this spot that you thought was uh, w- w- is so great well I mean Angelo Lutz who's the owner and, and, and runs the place is a good friend of mine Angelo has a, a background and he was involved in uh, an organized crime case did his time and mm. is one of the I, I think one of the great success stories this is a guy who truly has turned things around and uh, he, he runs a really good restaurant he's in the middle of Collinswood is like the South Jersey restaurant mecca mm-hmm. and uh, he's holding his own it's a great place yeah well I want to go back with with you and, and your mm-hmm. story in terms of coming over here you are your third generation is that right my, Sicilian my, my grandparents immigrated from Sicily. Right, right. Okay. So my father was born here and I'm 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 sec- I guess second generation Italian American. Right. Okay. And so what do you know about about their story? I mean there was a major there was sort of a major uh, immigration from Sicily at the right. early 20th century, right? Yeah, I mean most of the people that came were poor and most of the people that came didn't speak English. And anyway, there's a there's a certain irony in all of this when I hear all of this talk about immigration and and here's the irony that I find, Johnny. I mean, I have people in my own family and people in my generation who are very conservative about this. Mm -hmm. And what I say to them is, a hundred years ago, it would have been our grandparents who were being denied because they Mm -hmm. don't have an education, they don't speak the language, Mm -hmm. they don't bring any skill, so what's the point of letting them into the country? Mm -hmm. And that that kind of flies in the face of what America's about. I mean, I'm here today because my grandfather and grandmother came here and struggled to make it. You know, my my father was the youngest of seven Mm -hmm. and the only person to graduate from high school. He had three children, me, my brother, my sister. All three have college degrees. Mm. His first two grandchildren, my my daughters, both have master's degrees. Mm. That's the American experience. There you go, right? It doesn't happen in a day. And, and, and to deny immigrants because they don't have the skills of the language, it loses sight of what America is about. So, yeah, I mean, that's a long answer to your no, question. No, that's beautifully said, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah no, I totally definitely appreciate that because it's definitely, you know, it kind of does seem like we're we're reliving some stuff we thought we had moved past. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think we lose sight of who we are, where we came from, and then the next other is somebody that we we want to shun. Mm-hmm. That's not the way this country is supposed 
supposed to operate. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So you got your start. You you went to Dartmouth, and yeah. we talked a little bit <laughs> yeah. earlier. And uh, where is yeah. Dartmouth for the people? Dartmouth that don't know? is in Hanover, New Hampshire, and, and it snows in October, and you don't see the ground again until May. Wow! But it's you were from <laughs> but you were from this area, right? I was born in South Philly, grew up in South Jersey. Yeah, and I had a chance to to go away to school, uh, you know, and. As I mentioned, I mean, I, I had a chance to go to Lehigh, to Penn, or to Dartmouth on the, kind of the same ride. Mm-hmm. And since Dartmouth was the furthest away, I wanted, I wanted the experience being away from home. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why I picked Dartmouth. And uh, it was a good experience. I mean, I, I, I really, I like the place. I'm, I'm much happier now that it's co-ed. When I was there, it wasn't. <laughs> but uh, it's a good school. And, and I got a really good, ed- you know what I got I'm out of Dartmouth? When I remember going there and, and uh, one of the professors said, you come here and what you do is you learn how to learn. Mm-hmm. It's not important what you major in. It's not you learn how to learn, and you take that with you. And 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 you know that's what reporting is about is is being a quick study. Mm-hmm. You, you a lot of different stuff thrown at you, and you got to figure it out and be able to explain it. And when I graduated, um, I had I had again that's fortunate. I, you know this is in the middle of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. I had wrecked my shoulder playing football and rugby, so I failed my physical. Mm-hmm. So I I I, I Couldn't got go. a deferment. Mm-hmm. So then I had to go look for a job, and I applied at a small newspaper near where I grew up, and it was an opening for a sports writer. And since I had played sports, the, the editor knew me, and I got a shot. And he you know, gave me a tryout, and I started out as a sports writer, and I spent a year writing high school sports. Mm-hmm. And then kind of, that was my journalism school. That first newspaper mm-hmm. that I went to work for was the Woodbury Times back then. Now it's mm-hmm. the Gloucester County Times. I spent four and a half, five years there, and that was my journalism school. I started out as a sports writer, then became a news writer, and by the time I left, I was the city editor. So wow. that's where I learned about journalism. You moved to you moved to the Inquirer, and pre- was it pretty quickly that you got put on the Atlantic City beat? Within two years. I was in, in, first I was in Gloucester County, then I was in Trenton, but then I got sent to Atlantic City to help with the coverage of the casino gambling referendum in 1976. Okay. And I, and I was down there for that, and then I was down there for the opening of the first, I think, six casinos. I spent, I probably spent six or seven years in Atlantic City for the Enquirer. Okay. So you were there at the beginning of Atlantic City. Very, the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I was there during the referendum and I was there, covered Resorts International's opening mm-hmm. and covered Bally's opening, Caesars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first five or six casinos I was there for, yeah. So how did you, how did you sort of make a move into realizing you know, obviously the the underworld was a part of that whole Atlantic well, City know, gambling situation. I, yeah, I mean, d- during the the run up to the referendum, there was a lot of debate about was legalized gaming. They always called legalized gaming, not gambling. <laughs> was legalized gaming going to bring the mob to Atlantic City? Well, the answer was the mob already was in Atlantic City, right. but, but so that became part of my coverage, mm-hmm. and then it just expanded out of there. And I'm I'm writing about casinos, I'm writing about the industry, I'm writing about the ethics, I'm writing about the money, and then I'm writing about mm-hmm. is the mob trying to get its hooks into Atlantic City the way it did in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of that, and then Angela Bruno got killed in 1980, right. and then things changed rapidly after right, that. Right, yeah. right. How did you get those guys to talk to you? In the beginning, they didn't. They didn't. But the more I stayed with it, the, the more I'm, I, I become part of the, mm. the furniture. I mean, if there's a trial, I'm there. If there's, there's a hearing, I'm there. And then, mm. um, you know, it's just like covering any other beat. Right. The more you do it, the more people get to know you. And some of them, for whatever reason, decide they want to talk to you or they want to try to spin. Right. So they could use. They could. Yeah, they could. You could right. help them they get want, their yeah. side of it out. And right. you know, for mob guys, it's kind of unusual. But with, I was fortunate that. The next generation of wise guys seemed to like the attention and, mm, and wanted right, wanted to have right. the last word. So that right. helped me a lot. Right, yeah. right, 
Was that surprising you, that shift? Because it used to be you keep your mouth shut, you don't come around, but then the next generation kind of more flashy. Sure. I mean, Angelo Bruno, like I, I, I was, uh, I remember covering a couple hearings when I was in Atlantic City that he would was called to subpoena to testify. And he was very polite, but would never mm. say anything. Right. You know, no common earth, nice to see you, thank you very much, whatever. Mm. Nicky Scarfo, I don't think ever liked me, but he would never talk to me. Mm. But it was the next generation of guys... Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that John Gotti syndrome. Mm-hmm. Gotti in New York is, mm-hmm. look at me. What's the point of being a gangster if nobody knows who you are? Right. That kind of flies in the face of what the mafia secret society is supposed to be about. But these guys had this this American version of the, the celebrity gangster. You know. Mm-hmm. So you get involved in this at a time that's coming right after Godfather and Godfather 2. Mm. Do you think that also changed the way that people viewed the mob as opposed to how I, I know we talked about a little bit about how the guys after Gotti and, and then into Skinny Joey were a little bit more into being on camera but before that d- did Godfather and Godfather 2 just completely change sort of the American consciousness when it came to the mob I, I think it became a big part of pop culture and, and I, but I think the Americans have always had a fascination with the outlaw mm-hmm. whether it's Jesse James Billy the Kid mm-hmm. uh, Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. Al Capone, then Don Corleone. I mean, America has this fascination with the rogue, the person that operates outside the law. Mm. Uh, there's a certain glamorization of it. There are some people who complain that you help to glorify mm. the mob and the sort of the, the dark side of the Italian-American yeah. experience, uh, being Italian-American yourself. Like, is that something you take personally? Does that upset you when people make that accusation? No, no, I mean, I, I've heard it. I, I, I've heard it a lot. There was a, a, a one really big confrontation at the Inquirer one time. But, I mean, my... my well, take, hold on. Let's yeah, back yeah, up a little bit here. A little bit. <laughs> Somebody showed up on you? No, no. Here's, here's what happened. I mean, it, it, back when John Stanford, the mob boss, got indicted. There's a big indictment back, I think it was 94. Mm. 1994. Big racketeering case. And there were 24, 25 defendants. And one of the lawyers in the case had gotten fired, but he had all the documents. The discovery, the, the, this, you know, when, when, you, when there's a trial, the defense attorney gets all the information before trial, so it's called discovery. A wiretap information, affidavits, all of that. One of the lawyers had gotten fired, he was pissed off, and he called me over to his office, and he, and he had this stack of papers on us, and he said, you know what that is? I looked at it, and I, I said, yeah, could I borrow that? And so I took it all to Staples, made copies, and then mm-hmm. the, the editors at the Inquirer said, take a week, read through it all, and then put together the story. So I put together the story, and it was, I think it was called, it might have been called Mob Talk, I forget. It, was on, it ran on the front page on a Sunday, and three full pages inside. Mm. Pictures and sidebars, and it was really, really, it was, it was a good story about what this case, the anatomy of an investigation. Mm. Had wiretap, had affidavits, all this kind of stuff. Right. And uh, <laughs> it ran on a Sunday, and I remember my wife and I are sitting, watching the 11 o'clock news. It's a Sunday in October. Mm. And the top of the news is the Columbus Day Parade. Mm. And my wife says to me, you think anybody's going to be pissed off that Columbus Day Parade, and today's the day this big mob story? <laughs> I said, nah, yeah, I don't know. Right, right. I go into work Monday, and we got, we got calls from every, you know, the Sons of Italy and, and mm. all these Italian-American groups. They, they wanted to have a meeting. They, they were convinced we did it on purpose. Now, in retrospect, we probably should have been more aware of it, but we weren't. We had the story. We wanted to get it in before anybody else. Mm. So we had this big meeting, and we're sitting around a table, me, some of my editors, and the four, five, six, seven guys from different Italian-American groups. And the one guy says to me, if this was a black issue, you'd be an Uncle Tom. 
you know who you are? You're an Uncle Guido. <laughs> and, 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 and it went downhill from there. And I mean, right. and, yeah, and, wow. you know, and I understand <laughs> they could not, you could not convince them that we didn't do it on purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. So going forward, that was, I think, October 95. Going forward, I never wrote a mob story on a second Sunday. In there you go. <laughs> and, and I was, you know, I was cognizant of that. But the, the, to get back to the, the fundamental question, I mean, it's, I understand the sensitivity, and I think it's a generation prior to mine. And my dad was never like that, but I think people in his generation were. They, they went through a lot. But I would always say to people that, uh, when this would come up, that any ethnic group that could give America... Camille Paglia and Antonin Scalia in the same generation doesn't have to worry about Tony Soprano being its poster boy. Right. You know, you got to know who you are. You got to know where you come from. Right. You know, I, I, my mother used to say, and I grew up with this. You know, mm. Italian Americans are the best at whatever they do. Everybody, anybody, either is Italian or wants to be Italian, and we're the best at what we do. There's Rocky Marciano, there's mm-hmm. Joe DiMaggio, mm-hmm. there's Fiorella LaGuardia. Even the crooks, Al Capone, he was the best. I mean, you, you know, it's, you, you know, you, it's a, it's, it's a kind of a pride, a crazy kind of pride in who you are. But you got to know that. Uh, well, you mentioned a bit about the assimilation. Mm. Hasn't that also had a pretty major impact on the mob in terms of uh, the guys that now, that previously might have been the head guys in the mob, are now doctors or lawyers or, or what have you? Because there's just been that assimilation that there wasn't 60, 70 years. Yeah, ago. I think I think the mob by and large is scraping the bottom of the gene pool. The guys that, that get into the mob now are not the guys who, who could be, can be legitimate leaders. Whereas two generations ago, a guy like Angelo Bruno, Carlo Gambino, another time, another place, they could have been the CEO of a company. They right. had that, that, that acumen. Right. A lot of the guys in the mob today who were leaders don't have that. Right. I mean, John Gotti was basically a thug. Yeah. It was a, you know, he was a celebrity thug, mm-hmm. but he was a thug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the opinions of a uh, inquirer writer, former inquirer writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the opinions of the Philly Blunt. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about the view of the today today's mob or the variety of mobs versus what they were 40, 50 years ago. Well, I mean, in terms of traditional organized crime, because of Nostra Mafia, I mean, what you've seen over the past 20 years is a deterioration. And it's, it's, I guess for want of a better word, the value system of the mob has fallen apart. The whole idea of omerta, of the code mm-hmm. of silence, mm-hmm. of not cooperating, right. all of that's gone. Right. And it's partly it's generational. I mean, you could make an argument that in the 30s and 40s, these guys became mafioso because it was something they wanted to be or they aspired to. Mm. Uh, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them. They, they actually believed in that, that whole concept of the, you know, the secret society, the men of honor. Mm. You come two generations forward and these guys get involved because it's a way to make money. Right. Now when they get jammed up, and there, there's not a question of, uh, you know, I, I got to honor my my code. Now it's a question of, I got to make a business decision. How do I cut my losses? Mm, how so, do I get out of this? So they flip mm-hmm. because it's not, it's not a way of life anymore. It's it's a way to make money. And and now I'm jammed up. How do I get out from underneath that? Right. And that's what we've seen again and again is with all the cooperators. I mean. I used to know all the numbers. Like Joe Valachi in 1963 testified. First time ever anybody ever heard a made guy give it all up. Talked mm. about Cosa Nostra. Talked about the, the structure. And I think from 63 to 86, maybe there were three or four other guys. Philadelphia, there's probably been a dozen guys in the last 10, 15 years. New York, there's several dozen. Mm. Boston, everywhere. Mm. So the whole thing has come apart. Right. And it's, it's partly it's these guys, this next generation 
are the, the best and the brightest doctors, lawyers, educators, and the mob is is down at the bottom of the rung. Right. Have you ever had a situation where you knew someone was going to flip and you had to sit on it until it was done? I had an, a really interesting relationship with Ronnie Previty. Okay. Who was a gangster out of Hamilton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. who basically Ronnie cultivated me knowing he was going to, I didn't know at the time, he cultivated me knowing he was going to cooperate and flip. Mm. And I don't know if you know Ronnie's background. He was a Philadelphia he was a cop, cop, right? Yeah. was a Philadelphia cop. Then really? He got, yeah, then he got involved in Atlantic City. Then he got involved in his own, had his own crime organization. And then he got, became a member of the Stanford organization. Well, I started writing about him at that point, ex-cop, now a bodyguard to the mob boss, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And I get this phone call from him and he says, you seem to have an undue interest in my life. I'd like to talk to you. Now, you know, you, 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 <laughs> you can't, from, yeah. Well, yeah, you can't say, no, I mean, this is right. a whole macho world, but you can't be writing about it and say, oh, I don't want right, to talk right, right, right. So I said, all right, I'll meet you as long as it's in a daytime in a public place. <laughs> so I used to hang out at the Silver Corn Diner down in Hamilton. He said, come down and see me. We'll have lunch. Mm-hmm. So I told my editor, here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going to go see if anything, you know. But nothing. I go down and see him, and he's a very erudite guy, mm-hmm. and he starts to tell me stuff. And I'm not sure why, but... You know, I'm, he's right on on a lot of stuff I'm, I'm checking out. And, and we get to know each other. And, and, you know, he becomes a source for me. And then he keeps saying to me, someday you'll write a book about me. I said, Ronnie, you've told me about gambling, extortion, brothels that you're running, drug dealing. If I write about you, you're going to go to jail. And he says, don't worry, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. Mm-hmm. Well, he already knew he was right. cooperating. He was wearing a wire and he was going to flip. So, I, you know, I, I should have, I think eventually I realized, but mm-hmm. not in the beginning. But, yeah, that's the, yeah. That's the only time I... Other guys would contact me after they flipped. Is he no. still around, Ronnie? Ronnie passed away two years ago. Oh. A year ago, August. You remained in contact with him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a great guy. He, you know, Ronnie didn't go into witness protection. Ronnie stayed in the area. Uh, he's a very, very fascinating guy. I wrote, I wrote a book about him, The Last Gangster. It was about Ronnie mm-hmm. Brevity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Now, these guys around here don't like him because he testified against him. Of course, him, but, sure. And that was interesting. He testified against them, and they called him the fat rat. <laughs> and and Ronnie would say, where are they and where am I? Right. And and, and I remember after the, the big trial in Philly, I had lunch with the wives of two of the guys who were convicted. And and women always have the better perspective mm-hmm. on the waters. It's been my experience. And I'm sitting around, and we're talking about Ronnie and about their husbands. And, and the one wife looks at me and says, where is he and where's my husband? Mm-hmm. He's free on the street and my husband's in jail. End yeah. of story. I mean, yeah. that's, you know. That's the bottom line for yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you think that there's uh, any of the gangsters from the Angelo Bruno era would recognize the mob at all today? Or there, uh, is there anything not, that's still similar from well, 45, I mean, 50 years I, ago? I think, I think, sure, they would recognize it because it's still based in South Philadelphia and because the sons and nephews and cousins of those guys are, are the guys that are involved now. I think what they would be surprised at is it's not the big moneymaker it was back then. There aren't as many opportunities. I mean, look at gambling. you got the lottery and you got casinos, so mm. that's, they lost a lot of that. Sports betting is now legal. So right. Right. everything is, is encroached on their, their economic engine. Mm. So, you know, where else are you going to go into drugs? Well, drugs is a very dangerous thing because, uh, one, the penalties are higher. Right. And, two, the, the, the much larger risks because mm-hmm. you're dealing with mm-hmm. people who you can't depend on. I mean, right. that, you know, Angelo Bruno didn't want to deal drugs, not because he was morally opposed to drugs, but, one, because he already had gazillion dollars and didn't need it. And, two, he didn't trust that 
segment right, of the underworld. Right, 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 right. Guys are going to flip because they're strung out. Guys are going to flip because they're jammed up. Mm-hmm. Or maybe my own guys are going to get involved and they're going to get strung out and then I can't right, depend on right. them. So it wasn't a moral. It was an economic, economic decision for him. Was that a real like, deal or die? Was like a real thing with the La Coconut? Like if you well, go- you know, I mean, it's a, they, obviously I'm the, only going off of... Like, no, no, no. no. They, there, there was, I mean, there was in, in, in New York, I mean, when... Paul Castellano and, and Vincent Giganti were running the Gambino and, and Genovese crime families. They had an edict. You deal drugs and you get caught, we're going to kill you. Right. But guys still did it right. because there was so much money to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Risk. Yeah, do you ever, when you, you just talked about going to the meeting uh, out in Hamilton, when you're going to these meetings, are you ever a little bit nervous or you ever kind of got in the back of your head like alright these guys are kind of dangerous guys I don't I, is this a good idea no I mean like I said if I meet with, with when I would meet with any of these guys I would always be in a public place and the thought went through your head though no well, I mean you gotta yeah. that's the reason you would pick a public place because it's always there but by and large, I, I, I never felt threatened. Even, even when you were starting out, even I mean, well, when I was starting out, I wasn't able to meet with any of these guys. They, you know, <laughs> right. basically, they wouldn't talk to me. They didn't know who I was. You know, mm-hmm. it's only after I built up kind of a right. track record right. that they knew me, and then some of them still didn't want to talk to me. Didn't like some to this day. They don't like me. But other guys, you know, they they saw I think a chance to get their version of right. the story out. Right. So they right. so they did it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we had guys at the Inquirer who. I, I, much more dangerous they dealt with bikers a couple of guys got beat yeah, up pretty badly yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. a whole different right. segment of the journalists got yeah. beat up by bikers two Philadelphia Inquirer journalists got beat up by wow. I think the Warlocks yeah, yeah. Tom Maslin and Rod Nordland Nordland Maslin since passed away Rod Nordland's now with the New York Times but they went what they thought they're going to meet with a couple of bikers at a store they were working and they were ambushed wow. and they were physically assaulted you know yeah. it's, a, you, it's a dangerous group of people right. yeah. yeah and then you had the Pete Dexter I was just reading about oh, right. that Pete yeah. Dexter going down to yeah. uh, Devil's Pocket yeah. and uh, the Irish weren't too crazy about well, that well I mean after. and that's the problem with, with when we got somebody saying the media is the enemy of the people mm. I mean then, then you're going to generate even more of that right, mm. right and it, right. it you know calling the media the enemy of the people flies in the face again of what America is about right you know, the newspapers have a role to play in democracy. And if right. you don't have a free press, you're not going to have a democracy. Right. Well, I feel like that that sentiment is only said because the media isn't on that it, person's side most of the time. Well, if it was the other but, way around, it would be the media is the greatest thing ever. Thank well, God the right. media. I, mean, I think it was very calculated. If you look at it, it was from the very beginning right. get-go. And right, because right, he right. knew yeah. his biggest problem was going to come around yeah. from the media. It's, it's into sadly working, doing. too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I mean, right. it was very Machiavellian, but it's worked to a... To a degree that surprised me, yeah. to, you know, forty percent of the population. They're very, yeah. very, very troubling. Yeah. One, uh, I was trying to find some criticism of you, and I no, found, no. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and and I found one guy who said that, and I'm paraphrasing yeah. here that you couldn't be trusted because you got your info from the cops and from rats. How would you respond to that accusation? Well, I mean, you get your info from wherever you can find it, and and cops are. Intimately involved in what's going on, and and they talk to you. Rats want to tell their story and spin their version of it. But I've also talked to defense attorneys. I've talked to wise guys. Mm-hmm. So I get my information from a lot of different places. I think this particular individual probably is talking about the books I've written. Most mm-hmm. of the books I've written have been built around an informant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first book, Blood and Honor, was Nick Caramondi. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last gangster was Ronnie Previty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so. It, that's, you know, but I mean, the 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 point is that kind of necessary to write the book. Well, I mean, you have I mean, to have somebody well, driving the narrative, right? Well, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I would love 
to sit down and do a book about Joey Merlino, but I don't think Joey Merlino could be totally honest with me. <laughs> right. You know, so then what, then what am I getting? I'm getting his spin on events. Can you help me with this? I was trying yeah. to tell yeah. them when we were in the car ride on the, on the way over here. Didn't his wife get caught with some guy with one leg under her, under the bed? Am I making that yeah, up? No, Billy Rennick. The guy's <laughs> name was Billy you. Rennick. Yeah, yeah. He he had lost a portion of his leg in a motorcycle. Right, accident. right. He was under yeah. the bed or something. Yeah. I don't know the yeah. whole story, but yeah. I just yeah. remember reading that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, that was a calculation. My belief to to this day yeah. is that the raid. Mm-hmm. When he was discovered under the bed was a calculated effort by law enforcement to embarrass Joey. Mm-hmm. There was no need to do it when they did it, but they right. did it because they knew, knew right. that there would be headlines about it. So, I mean, everybody plays games. Right, right, right. I'm right. not naive enough to think that the police are always telling me the truth or always honest. Everybody's got an agenda. Right, mm-hmm. of course, so, of course, yeah. of course. And that's part of your job is to sift through what sift different through, side, or, both sides or, are telling you? Yeah, I mean, it's part of it. The other part is this, and I, I, I say this when I talk to journalism classes. You know, it, journalism in its purest sense is a search for the truth. Mm-hmm. Reality is a reporter gathers a lot of facts, and at a certain point you got an editor saying, when are you going to write that story? Right. So you write the story based on the facts you have today, right. understanding that tomorrow there may be three different pieces of information that skew or change that story. Right. You know, you, you're not... You don't know the absolute truth. You never do. You, right. you search for it. But, right. yeah, so that's... that's is, there, is there a difference you feel when you're reporting a story as opposed to just writing for yourself? Is there, uh, is there a difference there's a, energy? There's a big difference between reporting for the newspaper and writing a book. When I write a book, it's, it's subjective, not mm. objective. Mm. So when I'm writing a book and Ronnie Previty is the principal character, the book is going to come from his point of view. Right. And that's what I'm telling the story from. Now, right. you don't like Ronnie, you're not going to like the book. And I don't know all the answers, but mm. this is what he said. This is what he testified to under oath. Right. This is what the government used to make their cases. Right. Here's who he is. And, yeah, there you, know, you go. Take it or leave it. Yeah. This Halloween, the 30-year anniversary of the infamous shooting at Dante and Luigi's, yeah. uh, that yeah. was uh, officially unsolved. Correct. But I'm yeah. guessing you probably have your own sort of. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's been there? there's been all kind of there, there's documents, there's uh, informant uh, uh, debriefings, uh, there's law enforcement people. I mean, Dante and Luigi shooting Nicky Scarfo Jr. is is having. Uh, I get clams and spaghetti, I think. He's with two other guys and a guy carrying a trick-or-treat bag. Was one of them Jerry Blavitt? Was that no, no, Jerry was at a different shooting. Okay. <laughs> no, so the guy's carrying a trick-or-treat bag wearing a mask, walks in, walks up to the table, pulls out, a, I think, a, a, a Mac 9 gun and opens fire on Scarfo Jr. Hits him six times. Leaves the restaurant, drops the gun and disappears. And... Scarfo Jr. survives the hit. It's amazing. I mean, really? Oh yeah. In retrospect, and I remember talking to some cops right after this happened. A few days before that, a law enforcement guy had been shot. He was wearing a, a vest, bulletproof vest, and a bullet went under his arm and, and killed him. And they said, and here's Scarfo sitting at a table, takes six bullets, right. and he walks away. He no walked vest. Right. Yeah, walked out of the hospital. So, you know, everything is perspective. But anyway, the con- consensus has always been that Joey Merlino was the shooter that night. Uh, informants have told the feds that and, and, and law enforcement believes that nobody's ever been charged with that shooting Joey's never been charged there's a there's a tape in which Scarfo Jr. is talking to his father Scarfo Sr. in prison in which they basically say it was Merlino that did it in, in code but it was Merlino right. and, and Scarfo Sr. says to his son you should take that guy to dinner, meaning do to him what he did. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. So, but, th- th- but then I talked to Joey about this several years later, and 
Joey says, Joey's amazing. Joey said, it, it couldn't have been me because I was on probation at that time and I wasn't allowed out after seven at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then obviously, Joey, well, couldn't, couldn't have been you. Yeah. I mean, but... It, He's amazing, classic. Yeah. What, what was what was he like? Because uh, he was obviously Joe, one of the more from my generation. He's the most popular yeah, mafia the, boss of Philly. Yeah, yeah, Joey's the face of the Philadelphia mob. Joe, I mean, I would sit down, either have a drink with him, or have lunch with him, and then mm. come away realizing he didn't say anything. He didn't right, tell me anything. Right. He's very glib. He's very always. How's your family doing? How's your? Mm. You know, he had two daughters. I had two daughters. How's your daughters doing? You know, that. very personable guy. Talked about sports. Mm. Very well read. Talked about all the government screw ups. He knew about every. Mm. You know. Uh, but he would never really get into anything. And, and the, I mean, the classic Joey line, and, and uh, Dave Schratweiser from Fox 29 got this on film with mm. Brad Now, the photographer. They knew Joey very well. They were mm. reporting the same time I was. Uh, I, during this incident, after the Dante and Luigi shooting, from prison, Nicky Scarfo Sr. supposedly put uh, a $500,000 contract out on Joey's life. Wanted somebody to kill Joey. Wow. And... Shrat and, and Brad now driving around South Philly. They spot Joey. They get out of their car. They got the camera rolling. Joey's on a corner. And they're going to ask him about this. And, and they say, Joey, what do you think about this contract? And, you know, Joey's got that glib way of talking out of the side of his mouth. He looks in the camera and he says, you give me the half million dollars, I'll shoot myself. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that, that was that was Joey. I mean, Joey is, you, you can't make very, this stuff up. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very good. Yeah. You know, and again, he's, he said something really clever, but he didn't say anything. He didn't in say terms anything. Of the, right. you know. Right, right, right. So how does, because we talked earlier about how guys like that tend to nowadays drift more toward academia. How, how does a guy like Joey still end up? in this profession if he is that smart and he is that personable and that likable well you know I mean I didn't, you know, I don't know in terms of education and all whether he had opportunities or not his dad was uh, an, an underboss for Scarfo so he kind of grew up in it and uh, I, I think he you know that that's what he knew growing up his dad had done it his uncle Larry Merlino was a gangster so you know, I think that's that's the way he drifted, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because he is smart enough that he could have been mm-hmm. or done something else. Mm-hmm. But what is it about? Most of your writing has been about the Italian mob. Yeah. What 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 is it that kind of keeps you focused on that as opposed to the Jewish mob or the Irish mob or the black mob? Or there's well, a variety of obviously groups yeah. in Philadelphia, especially. Why why has your career been so hyper focused on the Italian? Well, mob? I mean, because when I started, that was the major game in town but I, I I was thinking about this coming over here today if you looked at the writing I did the last three or four years before I retired in 2012 I probably wrote more about the drug underworld than I did about the mafia and I'm, I'm thinking about guys like Cabani Savage mm. um, that was that was a Alton vicious vicious man now you, yeah. you you go out on the streets of Philly and ask somebody who Joey Merlino is and they'll tell you ask him who Cabani Savage is not a lot of them will mm. know who it is mm. Cabani Savage a violent drug dealer yeah. he's doing five four or five life terms He's a very vicious guy. Uh, Alton Coles, the yeah, Ace Capone, he had a, a record company, but he was... Take down records. Uh, right, take down records. He was dealing crack cocaine in Southwest Philly. Uh, $1.2 million worth of crack in, in a year. I mean, wow. these were major, major players, and, and they had a more negative impact on the city than the wise guys. And, and toward the end, I was writing more about them than... 
But what I'm known for writing about the wise guys because that's where I did the books. Is there more interest in those articles about the Italian wise guys than? Well, I mean, I think the reading public has a frame of reference, and they just assume all black guys are drug dealers. Who gives a shit? No, no, part of it, part of it is a racial thing. That's true. That's true. Very true. And that's unfortunate. But and I think we in the media were guilty of that as well. And it only, I mean, I remember the wire changed that a little bit. Oh yeah, it did. All right. Well, I've got some. Uh, got a few. We we threw it out there yep. today to get a few uh, questions from some folks on mm. uh, uh, on the internet. One guy asked. John asked. Uh, and uh, which is more powerful, the Russian mob or the Italian mob? In a lot of ways, the Russian mob is. We just don't know. You know, uh, we just don't know all the games they're playing, and they're they operate on an international level. There was one rub, Russian mobster in this area, Simeon Mukhlevich. Probably never heard of him. He had a he had a, a company in Bucks County. They defrauded the I think on the Canadian Stock Exchange, a gazillion dollar fraud. Set up a phony company based supposedly in Poland, offices in Bucks County, and they ripped off a major major ripoff. Simeon Megalevich is now either back in Russia or over there somewhere. He's never he's been indicted, never brought to trial. Major major player. Um, there's other instances where you know you hear about extortion and you hear about um, all kind of rackets, insurance rackets. Mm. But uh, one of the things is that there haven't been major cases made. And the other thing is, Russian organized crime in America doesn't have a face. Right. Who's the John Gotti of the Russian mob? We don't know. He's, he's out there. But I think it'll be another generation at, as the Russians become more Americanized before we're going to know who they are. Do they run out of like North? They like, as far as well, you know, like Northeast Philly. Well, Northeast that kind of Philly, area? Roosevelt Boulevard up that yeah. way. There's always been a strong uh, Brighton Beach in New York. Yeah, I mean these guys are, but you know, you but hear, they, they seem to be more involved with like financial. Like we we yeah. talked to Bolaris, and it was the big scam. They seem to be more into scams, right, than kind of the heavier stuff. Sex trafficking is a big one too. For well, me. yeah, I think yeah, yeah go go girls all over, you know, yeah. moving them all around that kind of stuff. No, I yeah. think they're very violent, but you know. Um, but financial scams are the big money makers for them, and insurance fraud is big, Medicare fraud, uh, fraud, all that kind of stuff. There's, I mean, you know, and so you hear anecdotal stories. Like, I, I, there's a story. This goes back a while, where they, these Russian mobsters in New York had said, "This is back before cell phones. You remember the 800 numbers or the 900 yeah, numbers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You make a phone call, and if uh, one, it's a dollar a minute. You stay on the line, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they set up a situation in Manhattan where they got a couple guys, bike messengers." with the, uh, their satchels and they pull up to a, an office building and they go into the first office and they say, I got a package here for Mr. Smith. And she says, oh, there's no Mr. Smith here. So the messenger says, well, can I call my office because I got the wrong address. If, if he's allowed to use the phone, he calls the 900 number, stays on for as oh, long as he wow. can. Thank you very much. Then he goes to the next office and he works the whole building. Wow. And then, you know, over the course of a month, maybe the phone bill for the particular company is $12. But if you've done it 400 times right. yeah. and then right. every day of the week, and that was Russian organized crime. Nobody ever got charged with that. That's an anecdotal story. But mm-hmm. it, the guy said to me, this is the Russians. They're very right. sophisticated. Right, right, right. A lot of these guys, you know, they came from the Iron Curtain where they were dealing with the KGB and, and being sent to Siberia. And now they're going to come here and get sent to <laughs> Allenwood for financial fraud. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they'll take it's a, a shot. Joke. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and also yeah. a lot of these guys were very uh, educated. Right, you know. Right, right. right. Do so. you think that the, they fly under the radar so much because it's not like you said back to the like not as glamorous as the as the mob with the suits and all these guys are more like, you know. 
No, I think if we were in Brighton Beach, you'd be walking no, around. Okay. People would say you, you don't want to fool with that guy. See right, that guy right, over right, there. Right, Everybody right. knows who he is, and there, there, you know, there are guys who play that role. Okay, they're tough guys. Yeah, but we don't see it. I think because it's not part of the world we move around in, and the government hasn't made as many big cases, so we don't know. Yeah, we talked with Belarus. That was. Oh was yeah, that, sure. That was a Russian. That was a Russian mob. Estonia. Well, Estonia, Estonia women. Okay. But. Yeah, but that right. was, that's classic. I mean, that's just it's, it's taking the system as it exists and playing off it and using it and making money off it. That's what it always comes down to. They're, they're masters at that. That's what you know. I, I had a wise guy from North Jersey once tell me we we're talking about different things. He said, "You got to remember, from the underworld perspective, vice is commerce." Yep. So whatever it is, it's prostitution, drugs, illegal game. It's commerce. It's about how do you set up your company? How do you yeah. generate cash flow? That's what it is. Yeah, it's problematic now because everything's getting decriminalized. Yeah, or yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought of making your? This is from Jose. Have you ever thought of making your life experience into a movie? And I know you've tried to do a couple of those. No, right? no I've, I tried to write scripts on some of the stuff I've written about. It's not about me. Okay. It's about the Philadelphia mob and different things. And and I'm I'm working with a group of people right now that are trying to put together a movie based on one event, the, the Penn's Landing Willard Rouse extortion. I don't know if you remember that. but What's that about? That was back when, when Scarfo was the boss and, and Willard Rouse was a developer from Maryland who I think he developed the Inner Harbor down there in Baltimore and he was coming up and was going to develop Penn's Landing. Mm. And basically, um, he needed some ordinances approved in city council to get... Uh, federal funding to help his project like, I think 15 million in federal funds and the city councilman blocked the ordinances because he was in bed with Scarfo and Scarfo sent Caramondi to Rouse and said if you give us a million dollars the ordinances will pass and Rouse did what they didn't expect he went to the FBI wow. they just thought he would Shit. pay and they, the FBI secreted an undercover in as a project manager met with Caramondi and, and basically nailed Caramondi and the councilman for ex- trying to extort and the whole deal came apart so wow. this this the screenplay that's being written is a fiction based on that event right. it's the right. event okay. but the characters are changed. who is the councilman uh, Leland Beloff he huh. went to jail and he's, yeah. uh, he's back out now yeah, yeah. yeah. that's crazy yeah all right, we're going to take it there? Let's do it. All right, so we're going to do the Philly Blunt. This is real the last part of the thing. Yeah, we're then, we get, and then we'll eat. Yeah, eat. Yeah. Uh, all right, this is the last part. It's going to be rapid-fire questions, right. rapid-fire answers. All right. all right, here we go. What other style of food do you love besides Italian? Poof, French. All right. Uh, I just had my first daughter. Any advice? I used to tell my, both my daughters, the secret to life is figure out what you love to do and find a way to get paid to do it. There you go. Sauce or gravy? Gravy. Uh, on your what is on your bucket list still? I want to go back to Italy. I've been to Italy several times, but I want to go back. Favorite Philadelphia a- athlete of all time? Favorite Philadelphia athlete? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'm gonna, uh, maybe not all time. Just give me one or two. Favorite Philadelphia athlete? Uh, Norm Van Brocklin. That's going way back. Wow! wow. All right, going back to the 60, <laughs> 60 title. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, better Godfather, Michael or Don? <laughs> Don. Favorite mob movie? The Pope of Greenwich Village. Oh, great movie! Oh, they broke my nose. <laughs> Chaluch, they took my thumb. Yeah, yeah, uh, Eiffel Tower or the Louvre? <sighs> Eiffel Tower. Where can I get a good Jersey sandwich? <laughs> Donkeys. Donkeys in Camden. Oh, yeah. 
One lesson I am still learning is blank. Is you don't know everything. Mm. <laughs> uh, favorite newspaper besides the one you wrote for? The New York Times. A uh, journalist you worked with that you think was not that great. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, I'm not answering that one. <laughs> uh, what would be your at-bat music if you played Major League Baseball? What song, well, yeah, what song are you coming, song up, to, coming up, up to this swing, plate? Yeah. Uh, the theme to the Godfather. <laughs> what is the secret to a long and happy marriage? Um, this is this is good. This, my father gave me this advice on my wedding day. Don't try to win every argument. Very good. My, my dad told me not to try to win any of them. Just, just, <laughs> <laughs> just take the loss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, favorite Sinatra song? <laughs> the Summer Wind. Mm-hmm. What album do you take with you to Desert Island? Sinatra Joe Beam. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite place to eat in Philly. Um, that's my in Philly. One. Yeah, Radicchio. Radicchio. Favorite short town. Wildwood Crest. Mm. Worst job you ever had. I was the bowling columnist at a. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter where you were, just the bowling columnist. <laughs> Are we good? Yeah. yeah. All right. I think I think bowling columnist. That's uh, the great way to end it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, George. We thoroughly uh, appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're excited to uh, dig into this dinner. We uh, well, thanks for Ains for having us here. Yeah, thank where, you. Uh, where are we, Johnny? Oh man, I was hoping you were going to take this. There's a freaking Italian guy over here. Yeah. Kitchen Consigliere. Yeah, yeah, close yeah, enough. Close yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. All, right. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. See you. Just the sound of Philadelphia. Brothers covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs, the youth dreams cut short.